Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. This week's guest is Patricia Armstrong, OBE, Chief Executive of AXOHO, Vice Chair of OSCAR and a doctoral research student. Patricia, welcome to the show. Good morning, Pat. Thanks very much for joining us here in the I Was Going To Podcast. We very much appreciate you giving us your time today. Uh, you're a very busy lady, so the, the time, as I say, that you've given us is, is very much appreciated. Pat, one of the, the, the questions that we've asked all our guests, Callum and I really would like to ditch this question, but unfortunately the pandemic has uh, other ideas. The very first question is really, it's an, a highly unusual time. And uh, how have you found it and how have you managed to find keeping yourself busy during this unusual time? Uh, hi, guys, and thanks very much for the invite. I'm delighted to be here um, and to tell a bit of my story. Um, how have I been and how am I keeping myself busy? Um, busy is a bit of an understatement just now. <laughs> um, obviously, I work with 600 leaders across uh, charities in the third sector across Scotland. And... You know, one of the analogies we've been using is we're, we're trying to redesign the plane while in flight. So people are, you know, trying to totally change what they do at the same time as deliver a service. And usually with an increasing demand or, you know, they're trying to really, some are having to cut down on what they're doing because they just can't operate. So so as leaders in the sector, it's incredibly busy. And part of my role at Acosgo is to sort of support and connect those leaders. And because I wear lots of different hats, as well as being Chief Executive of COSPO, I'm on two boards. One is Vice Chair of the Charity Regulator, um, and one is a European network of third sector leaders. And I'm currently studying for a doctorate looking at resilient leadership. And I would never have thought when I chose that topic a year ago this month that that would be such a pertinent thing to do. So I suppose there's pros and cons about this time you know, on the one hand, you could say we can be incredibly productive because we don't have the travel time and we can do everything from generally the one place like we are today. But I think there is something on the challenge of having the reflective time when you go between meetings and the energy that you get from meeting people. Most of my job is about bringing people together and, you know, hearing, sharing stories, making connections and there's a different sort of energy when you do that in person. So, and I suppose the other thing for me is around the work-life integration, which is a term that I like to use rather than balance, because I think it, it is it is all integrated these days, and especially if, if you have a real passion for what you do. But I think certainly for a lot of leaders in the sector just now, they're, they're finding they're having to think more carefully about the boundaries um, and make sure they think about themselves as leaders. And I know I've sort of gone off topic a bit about the sector, but, um, you know, I think I'm one of those leaders that are finding it like that. I'm, I'm very much trying to focus on my organisation and my people and how we keep everything going and everyone well. But I think what I've been saying to my members is, going back to the aeroplane analogy, is that you're told when the oxygen masks drop that you should put your own on first so that you can help other people. And I think that's what we've been starting to do is looking at the well-being of the leaders, because quite often they're the last people to look after themselves. So I'm trying to make sure I sort of walk the talk on that one as well. Great analogy there, Pat. I, I really like that. Um, I, I've worked in the voluntary sector for large parts of my career. Um, I'm, I'm very much conscious of the annuality of funding and how reliant the sector is on that. Do, do you think the voluntary sector has been supported su sufficiently through the pandemic? 
Um, I think that's a bit of a mixed bag. I would say a yes and no. I think there was a really good response in terms of emergency funding coming through. Um, you know, and also supported by the 35,000 volunteers that signed up to help. So there was there was a lot of support come together. But with everything just now, it was it was done at haste and it was for now. So there's a lot of organisations who are sort of feeling, well, I know I can, if I work really hard and keep juggling, I can manage until March. I think the worry now is the longer term thinking. And I think there's been a bit of an expectation that those who are in a, who've been very prudent and have reserves, the expectation is that they will use those reserves. And I think now that we're starting to see that the big events and a lot of the ways of operating that brought in income might not be able to happen post-March. So I think the worry is now about the future and the longer term thinking. Just uh, sort of continuing on that, uh, Pat, if you had the opportunity to speak to the First Minister regarding what we've just discussed, is there anything that you would like to say to her? Two things come to mind. One is the first one would sort of be well done from working with leaders just now and knowing that the pressure that they're under, I think no matter what your political persuasion, I think being a leader in this situation and, and the sort of courage, dignity and class that she's shown I, I think I'd you know I'd say well done to that and and also in terms of going back to that wider work-life balance um, I've been really heartened when I see that she still occasionally posts on Twitter about what books she's reading and I think how on earth does she have time to read a book so yeah. so that would be added to my well done I suppose from a sectoral perspective I'd, I'd say you know continue to make sure that the sector is an integral part of the plans for the way forward. You know, the, the programme for government and our movement toward our, as a country, being part of inclusive economic growth, the sector is such an integral part of that. And I think a long way to making sure we're at the right tables, but I think there's also a way to go. So I think making the sector an integral part of discussions going forward is really important. It's interesting. I was having a chat uh, with my son yesterday about uh, Nicola Sturgeon, and we were just having a, a large uh, debate about a number of different things, non-political. And he said, you know, I've actually got uh, Nicola Sturgeon's sister on Facebook. And he said, there was a very poignant statement that she said, she just said, could you leave off my sister a wee bit? She's doing what she can. And I think yeah. behind that speaks an awful lot that uh, there's a person behind the First Minister, and I think that yeah, was very pertinent. And I think I, I wrote a blog in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, which was about leadership and being human, yeah. and it, it was about that. You know, we're all worried about our elderly parents or, you know, our kids or our jobs or their jobs, and, you know, always having that sort of face of being the professional leader isn't particularly helpful because it doesn't let other people open up and share their concerns and you know ha have that real conversations that need to be had in difficult times I think I've been having quite a few conversations about leadership just now and you know the importance of values trust and integrity is just higher than ever you know there's a lot of talk about it's not what or why you do things it's about how you do things just now which is really important the last question on this COVID and then we'll go on to the interesting bit about you Pat um, I mean, the voluntary sector has been renowned for its resilience. They do amazing stuff with very, very little resources often. Do you think it will change forever post-COVID? I think the sector will change. I don't think the resilience will change. I think you're right. That's the core of who we are and what we do. And, 
you know, we have to adapt and change continually depending on what's the flavour of the month, where the funding is, what the needs of beneficiaries are, what the context is around us. So I, I think that's always going to be there. If you were an eternal optimist, which I like to think I am, you would say the learning of having to be resilient through this time will stand us in really good stead. I think if I try and put my slightly more pessimistic head on just now, I think there's a risk of burnout. Um, I think, you know, we've been talking about it's been like sprinting a marathon. The immediate response meant we had to work at such pace and it has been quite relentless. So I think although resilience muscles are building and being strengthened, I think certainly if you're an athlete, you know that you have to give your muscles a rest occasionally. So I think that's that's the worry going forward. I think the resilience will stick, but we need to build in pacing yourself a bit to run the marathon. I'm certainly looking forward to the ice bath in a couple of weeks' time. October. <laughs> I've, I've literally had one week holiday this year. Obviously, the care sector, we've been so busy, and I can completely relate to what you're saying there. I mean, people are, you know, running on the, the, the fumes, you know. It's been very, very difficult. Um, and, and yet, never been such high profile, the work that we do. Certainly, we've came to the public image much, much quicker than anybody would have anticipated. So, yeah, brilliant. You, you were educated in Scotland. You went to Napier, Harriet Watt University, as you had mentioned earlier on there, that you're doing a doctorate. Can you take us right back? Because we're really interested in early education. Can you just give us a wee bit of foresight in terms of what that was like for you personally? Yeah. Well, firstly, to say I didn't actually go to either of those. I've never gone to university. I've always studied distance while I've worked. But to go to go right back, um, I was brought up in North Edinburgh. Um, my mum was on her own from when I was six, the three of us. Um, so, you know, what is now called an area of deprivation, which is something I never heard of. And, you know, I was relatively happy because it was all I knew growing up. And I, I thought everyone got the toes cut out of their shoes in the summer holidays to make them into sandals and that was just the norm <laughs> so the very working working class background went to local primary and on to secondary and didn't know anyone that had gone on to university but did relatively well at school but the, you know the automatic thing to do was to go out to work so I got a batch of all levels and off I went um initially to work in a shop for the summer until I got a proper job and oh went to work in a bank, which I'll come back to. But in terms of studying, I always felt a bit disappointed, the wrong word, that I missed out on opportunities once I got into the bigger world and met other people who'd gone on to education. So I went back, did a couple of hires at night school. Once I came into the third sector, which again is another story, went back and did, I think it was an HMC in business, again, juggling it with work. And then... Once I started to work more in the leadership field and get into management roles, I was working with people who had degrees, feeling that, again, that I missed out a bit and I wanted to be able to sort of interact at that level and decided that if I was going to study, I may as well go for the highest thing I could, um, which was an MBA. So I did an MBA at Heriot Watt. Can I just ask a question just to... Uh, probing a wee bit further if you don't yeah. mind uh, you said that uh, you know you obviously had the, the primary and secondary school education you had a handful of uh, O grades did you find that there was a, a lack 
of a relationship between the teachers and yourselves? Did, did, did you find that they encouraged you or discouraged you at school? Just a feeling of it's just school, let's get out of it. Um, I think there was a whole mixture there. In terms of teachers, um, I had a maths teacher and an English teacher who both very much encouraged me to stay on. Um, I was ducked of my primary school. I think in secondary school, I felt I probably that teenage thing of wanting to be in the background a little bit and was a bit slower at putting my hand up and didn't want to be the teacher's pet type, which I'd got a bit of stick about at primary. But I think both from career's advice and from home, the expectation, I think it was a timing thing as well. This was in the 70s and you know, job market wasn't good. It was just get out there and get a job as soon as you can while there's still some there. So although hearing from my teachers and getting that encouragement from a couple of them and then getting conflicting advice, I think that was why the bit stuck with me that I maybe could do a bit more. From the school, did, did, did you actually have a, a, a knowledge and a desire at that stage as to what you wanted to do for a career or was it just to obtain a job? Um, my early thinking... I refused to go to do secretarial studies at high school, which is what it was called, which gives a bit of my age away, um, because I never wanted to work in an office. So I knew that I was quite into PE and gymnastics and things. So being a PE teacher was one. And being a landscape gardener was a fantasy because I like to be outside. So it was a gardener or a PE teacher. And I hadn't really thought much more than that. But when the time came and there was part of me felt I, I was still young to be making that decision you know I I left I got a job that was that was what you did you obviously had some idea uh, internally do you think if you had been encouraged at school and they had discussed it properly through the career service that that would have put you in a different path quite possibly you know if somebody had taken me aside and said you know there are other opportunities available to you you know I've worked in North Edinburgh for a long time when I went back into the sector and that was the main thing that struck me. If your world is relatively small, you don't know what's out there. So you yeah. don't have the aspirations. A lot of what we did from working with women and confidence building, it, it was about showing that them that it was there was a bigger world than they had currently experienced, which gave yeah. them then aspirations. So I think I had quite a small world. So I didn't know there was aspirations out there. But if someone had sat me down and possibly spoken with my mum and stepdad or you know just opened up that world a little bit yeah. I might have felt a bit braver and more supported. I'm fascinated Pat because we had Kenny Logan on uh, as a guest a couple of weeks ago and he had a fascinating opinion of schools he is dyslexic and he hadn't really had it diagnosed until later on in life but uh, going through and reflecting on his school his comment was that teachers really should be able to see the star in every child and that should mm. be part of their job. And that really resonated with Callum and I when he said that because that's exactly what we would like to be able to do, that there are people that just don't have that ability, whether it's because they've not got the correct peer group to be able to identify what might be appropriate pathways, yeah. but we should have a structured service provision that allows that star in adverted commas to be yeah. seen in every individual. Yeah, no, definitely. I like I like that way of thinking. And, you know, not everybody's academic, and I didn't particularly yeah. see myself as academic. But so seeing the whole person and being able to encourage that um, 
I think in those days, career guidance was didn't really see the whole person at all. It, it was just, here's the jobs that are out there. Here's what, you know, scores you've got. There's where you might match. And it wasn't really more holistic. Write your aspirations for landscaping and being a PE teacher. You ended up working in a bank. So tell us how that transition came about. Well, I, I got a job over the summer because I left school without a job. I got a job in a shop um, serving while I applied for other things. And I remember going through a telephone book at the time <laughs> thinking somebody had told me a bank was a really good job to get. And I went through a telephone book and wrote to some banks, which is what you did in those days. I'd never been in a bank in my life before. I think probably checks was the nearest that I'd got to, if you remember those. So I'd never even stepped inside a bank. So this was a big, bold step for a wee lassie from Fulton. And I was successful in one of them. And my mum was over the world, um, over the moon about that. You know, she thought I'd got a job for life, that I'd done incredibly well and I'd reached my potential. Uh, you know, so, so that was how I ended up there. And I ended up there also feeling... I had to learn incredibly quickly. I didn't speak properly. I didn't dress properly. I didn't go to the right school. I didn't know the right things I should be talking about. So it was a huge learning of jumping into another world. And I think to some extent that fascination has stuck with me because a lot of what I do now is bring different worlds together and try and connect people between them and learn from them. I'm absolutely gobsmacked at what you've just said there, Pat, because I think that speaks volumes of... Uh, humanity um, and so much as you've just described yourself as not wearing the right clothes, not speaking the right way and I'm, I'm, I'm always sitting here ashamed that our society has such a feeling that you've got to be put into some form of box to be able to aspire to working within a bank. As you say, I think the world has changed a bit. You know, I think a lot of those boundaries have softened you know in those days women didn't do banking exams although I did ask quite a few times and didn't get senior positions and you left if you got married so it was it was a different world and I think you know the class distinctions if you like were much more obvious somebody well, like me didn't it, normally get into the bank I don't know how I winged it in Pat, but I did. The one thing I would say as well Pat is that I, I don't think that's necessarily changed for certain communities the journey mm. towards success is harder depending geographically where you're born. I don't know if you're aware that there's a Holyrood baby that the Scottish government pulled all the statistics together to actually prove that. You know, you're far more likely to be a victim of crime, you know, be a, a, a teenage pregnancy, you know, a whole load of different statistics that prove just because you were born in that street and not that street, your life chances are diminished as a result. So that is very much true. It might not be as in your face as it was when we grew up, but the, the mm. principles are still there in society. It's still unequal because of the postcode that you're born in. Yeah, yeah, I would agree totally. You, you mentioned that your mother, when you you'd, uh, managed to achieve the job in the bank, uh, did you find that your family and friends encouraged or discouraged your career aspirations in those days? Again, it was a bit of a mixture. I remember in my sort of, I think it might have been primary school leaving book when you went around and got lots of signatures. My my mum also wrote a message for me and it was aim for the stars and you'll get there, yeah. which must have been, yeah. you know, something she'd heard some, somewhere and thought it was a good thing to put, but it always yeah. stuck with me. So in that way, she, she did in, encourage me. But I think going back to the, the sort of world's, that are around us and our aspirations and our horizons, I think for her that was success. 
I remember when I was told that I was going back um, to study, she sort of said, why would you do that? You've got a really good job. Uh, so she couldn't understand why we'd want to go beyond that. Yeah. So, so I think, I think it depends on your horizons and, you know, your world about how, where you see that ceiling is. Yeah. And I suppose the really encouraging thing about that, Pat, is that you've done exactly that. You've aspired to more than that. So the environment that you've grown up in has obviously given you the encouragement and confidence to want more. Yeah, I, I think there is that. And I think there is something about, I think there's something inherent in all of us, especially when we start to have children, that, you know, you want your kids to have wider horizons and more opportunities. And I, I think that's, you know, that's certainly one of the things that's driven me. And I think, I think there's, there is something about always wanting to challenge yourself and take the first tiny steps sometimes and that opens another door which opens another door and sometimes you suddenly realise you're you're off. And so when you reflect back on your career then Pat, what are the things that you're most proud of achieving? I suppose in, it's not really my career but I can't help but say my kids you know I've now got two grown up well adjusted kids who've done amazing things in their own way probably despite the parenting they had as much as because of so I'm very proud of those I suppose the the work I'm currently doing is something that I'm very proud of. You know, I came into this organisation with with no staff, a relatively clean sheet. I had a consultancy company at the time, and this was a wee bit extra that would bring me in a regular income, but very, very soon became my baby. And I got a huge amount from bringing people together for peer support, good practice sharing, and, you know, meeting leaders who were, you know, finding it quite hard to be vulnerable and feeling quite lonely but whenever you put a group together in the same room with the same challenges um how supportive that could be for all of them and and that's grown and developed and it's allowed me to grow and develop and go in lots of different directions whether it's starting to make the connections across third public and private sector um or academia or more globally through some of the european network you know for me that's that's been something that I'm, I'm very proud of. We now talk about the yeah, Ecclesville family. And if somebody's having a tough time, we can usually find a hug in amongst it somewhere between a few of them. Virtual hugs, of course, are now all social distance and they can now. Exactly. <laughs> Virtual hugs, 600 members. We fire them out. You've done so many things throughout your career and throughout your life. I'm, I'm in awe of what you've managed to achieve. And both Callum and I are, are curious to find whereabouts is your motivation emanated from? Um, I think I've already mentioned my my kids and, you know, wanting them to have opportunities. I think there's probably something about a curiosity that I have. You know, I, I remember in the very early days when we were writing up job applications and things, putting something in that said something about, I like a challenge. I welcome a challenge and then thinking, why on earth did I put that when you really get into a challenge? But I think there is something about you know, that seeing a challenge and wanting to be able to, to get there and do better that I've always been slightly driven by. But I think for the last 17 years that I've been this in this role, a lot of my motivation has come from sector leaders and seeing amazing people doing amazing things in really difficult circumstances. And I know that I'm really, really privileged that my job means I'm continually meeting these people and I've had some really good opportunities through that to to be on things like global leadership programs and European leadership exchanges that just totally inspires me when you meet people that are 
you know, just doing amazing things. And that opportunity to, to travel a couple of years ago, um, I did a charity cycle across Nepal. And um, you see that different world and, and how people are still managing to make a difference and care for each other. That is just incredibly motivating and just makes you want to aspire to do more. Do you feel as though potentially some of that is the foundations are in your, your early life, the, the community that you grew up in, which by what you described sounded as though it really was a community? I don't know if I really noticed the sense of community at that stage. I think probably when I very first joined the voluntary sector. Yeah. I'm trying to think whether to tell a very quick story, which is, you know, I was the career woman. I went from working in a bank to working for Ferranti's, which was big avionics company and I was a career woman I had my first child my mum was a childminder already so she was my childminder and she took seriously ill and I had a younger um, brother by then so I, I just had to give up work to look after my own kid etc ended up doing childminding and ended up finding that there was a community sector out there that I didn't know existed because I got up every day and went to work and that could support me in lots of different ways and then I ended up working in it and almost seeing the, it was a women's project. I was working with women in very difficult circumstances. But when you saw the steps that they took out of the difficult circumstances, you know, that was just incredibly inspiring. And I, I think that motivated me to do, to work in that field and to do more of that. I, I certainly, I took a small sort of break from the voluntary sector and very quickly come back in again. And the way I described it, it, it felt like coming home to me. I just got it really quickly and it's so easy to identify the part of your inside to motivate yourself to want to do that, want to be part of it, want to make a difference, want to leave a legacy. And certainly when I reflect back in my career, the things I'm easily most proud of are the things that I've done whilst working for charities and in the voluntary sector. So um, I, I really get that. Have you read any inspirational books that have motivated you? The one that comes to mind, and I'm hesitating because I'm trying to read so many books just now in terms of my studies, I'm really struggling. When I first went to that very first women's project, somebody, the, the sort of Bible of the time was feel the fear and do it anyway. And, and, you know, there was some things in that that really stuck with me. You know, I think I do an awful lot of speaking and things, which we, I could never have imagined in those days. But that taking the first step, knowing it's going to be scary and that it feels scary, but it's okay to do it anyway and feel that fear. And there was another bit in that around the sort of pendulum way of thinking that quite often you bounce between, I don't know, being really terrified or really enthusiastic, but you will eventually get to a middle point and that works for lots of different things. Mm -hmm. So that's made me more comfortable with those extremes of feelings sometimes that knowing that you have to maybe bounce across that pendulum to find a space in the middle that you're comfortable with, which might not necessarily be in the middle. So that, that one stuck with me. And you're obviously an incredibly busy person, Pat. We're always asking our guests, uh, do you find time to manage both your physical and mental health? I do, not as good as I would like to. I sort of run a yoga cycle and... Normally, the way I force myself to do that is at the start of every year, I book things all year. I'll book 10Ks, a half marathon, a big cycle somewhere, and then that forces me to train. So I can't not. Obviously, everything's been cancelled this year, so it's been a wee bit of a challenge. But being home means I don't have a commute. You know, and there's pros and cons. It means I don't get to cycle to work. 
but I do have an extra half hour, hour in the morning that I can do a bit of yoga. And I do find that when I've been sitting in front of a screen all day, getting out for a run at the end of the day just makes a big difference. But I had started to build it into work, which is an area I'm really interested in. We, we had chief exec walks, chief exec cycles, that whole argument, you don't have to be sitting around a boardroom table to, to interact. And when you're having difficult conversations, being side by side is much less confrontational than sitting across the table. So we'd actually tried to bring a lot more activity into things that we did in terms of the way that we worked. So I do think that wellness is really important. One of my previous employers that I worked for, Pat, they encouraged a walking meeting, which I thought was a great idea, you know, getting out and about when it allowed, but still chatting over what it was that you wanted to do, that you would have sat in an office and done. Uh, I really really encouraged that. Definitely a way to go. The other one I've tried just now is Zoom meetings on a wobble board. When you've got a four hour board meeting to try not let anybody know you're standing on a wobble board. I'd recommend it. Well, I've nearly stood in the dog a few times. I don't know if that counts. Okay, so you, you, you talked, Taylor, on there, Pat, about, you know, setting out your, your challenges for, for the year. Do, do you consciously set visible business and personal goals as well? That's a bit of a yes and no. Business-wise, obviously, we'd write our strategy and have our objectives, and they're very out there. Um, but I must admit to being very much a list person and a diary person. My daughter gives me a hard time about it every time I say, let's get our diaries together. And she says, oh, mum. Um, but you know that's that's what keeps me right. I continually write lists. I like to tick things off, um, and that's personal, professional, you know, well-being. I'm not so good at it now. It goes in phases, but you know, one of the things I was encouraged to do early on was put time for you in the diary, even if it's just an hour to step back and think big. So, so I do, I do have various different things that I try and keep myself to set the goals but the main one is just being able to tick up lists and I yeah my kids still joke at me I have about three different notebooks for each different thing that I'm working on whether it's personal business or other stuff. Who are the three people that have inspired you the most throughout your life and if I can ask why? And I suppose my I would have to say my two kids and probably my mum. My mum because you know she did in those very early days say reach for the stars and she might have had different stars in mind than what I did. You know, she, she did encourage me to go try things. Um, and she did manage through a very difficult time when, you know, she had three of us, not a lot of money and being a single mom had a bit of stigma attached to it. And, you know, she carried on and pulled through that. So, and she's now a very feisty 84 year old who continues to give me a hard time and asked if I'm eating enough. So, um, so my mom and, and my kids too, you know, my son was very not academic, very into extreme sports and he's now blowing things up on oil rigs and <laughs> traveling the world. And, and my, my daughter has had a few health issues, um, but is now a respiratory physiologist and has been pulled in to do emergency work in COVID wards. And, you know, at 24, some of the emotional things she's having to deal with I'm incredibly proud of so so I think I think it's been close to home as well as all the amazing people out there that I'm working with. I'm going to throw a wee surprise question in here if that's okay Pat it's something that we ask most of our guests and we love to see the reaction do you think of yourself as being successful? Um, It still grates with me slightly because and I don't really like all this stuff about imposter syndrome 
as a thing and it's one of my challenges to myself has to be to try and own it because I see other people owning it really well um but there's always a bit of me that's you know the wee, the wee lassie from Pilton that I think why are people asking me to do this or calling me successful I've just dodged and dived and done my best um so it doesn't sit comfortably and I, and I think that's one of the reasons we ask it Pat I think what Stuart and I are trying to do where I was going to is actually make it that people understand it's okay it's okay to want to be a success in Scotland it's kind of bred into you don't get above yourself uh, and, and it's amazing how many very very successful people struggle with that acceptance of their own success and Stuart and I would like to change that mindset even just a wee bit you know I don't you know we, we don't want to be brash and bragging but it's okay to say actually I've done a really good job there and I'm proud of myself yeah, yeah. that's a lesson for all of us Pat there's a uh, Two final questions under, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given and what piece of advice would you like to pass on to the next generation? I, I think the best piece of advice that I've ever been given, and it was at a time when I was managing a community centre with a huge amount of different people using it, was that you can't please all of the people all of the time. And if you can please most of the people most of the time, you'll be doing a good job because I tend to, you know, I think I was a bit of a people pleaser and feeling that if I couldn't keep them all happy, where they were all using the same space, and whenever you did something for the kids' group or the older people's group or the Pilates group, you upset somebody else. There was no way. And and just realising that was a huge piece of advice that sort of stuck with me. So the next generation, um, I, I would stick with my mum's one of reach for the stars. But your stars might actually be further away than you first see it's that thing when you look up at the stars and the longer you look the further away you see so you know keep going in that direction I think and and to maybe go back to the the plane analogy I started with I read somewhere once that a plane doesn't go in a straight line it's actually going the wrong direction all the time because it makes tiny little movements recorrecting itself all the time so actually all those times you're not going in the right direction you you maybe are eventually you just have to keep making lots of different detours on the way pat thanks very much for joining us on the i was going to podcast it's been a pleasure speaking to you today um, and thanks very much for your time to, to to answer the questions that we've thrown at you in such an honest uh, manner oh, you're very welcome delighted to be involved <laughs>